Chris, the NHL sucks as an organization, and this is not a fresh or a hot or a new take, but it really, really does. This latest example is brought to us by that disallowed goal that the Calgary Flames scored in Game 5 against the Edmonton Oilers, in which it was ruled a kick-in. Now, the problem does not stem from this exact incident of this disallowed goal. It's that this incident proved that no one, including the NHL, is clear on what the rules are in the NHL. Like, after this happened, we saw plenty of examples of much more distinct kicking motions uh, being shown to us on goals that had been allowed all this season, all last season. And it's just like, it's further proof that the NHL really does not care about the people who watch the NHL. It's like they put no effort into putting a good product forward for their fans. Like, say what you will about other leagues. Like, if this had happened in the NBA, the next day we would have had a last two minutes report uh, explaining the call, at least. But it's like, the NHL has got to be the worst league at consistently enforcing its rules. If this had happened in the NFL, we would have had a former official on the broadcast explaining to us what the officials were looking at. Same thing for the NBA. Um, And in the MLB, as much as there's a problem with umpires right now, generally the problem doesn't come from not knowing the rules. The umpires know the rules. Sometimes they just miss the calls. Uh, But in the NHL, that was the problem, that no one knew how to enforce the rule because the NHL does not enforce the rule consistently. And it doesn't make any sense. It's embarrassing from a league point of view and it seems like they're just like aggressively trying to isolate the fans who love their games the executives who run this league are lucky that they get to oversee a great game like hockey because there's so much incompetence in the way that the entire thing is run that fans of most other sports would have cut bait a long time ago and speaking of fans who are lucky it's time for another episode of high floor lucy ling Welcome to High Floor Low Ceiling, the sports podcast you are listening to now. Uh, Griffin, how are you today? A a wonderful rant yet again about that Blake Coleman situation. Yeah, well, thank you, Chris. Uh, I I felt like I lost the plot a little in the minute there. (laughs) A little in the middle there, pardon me. But I'm rusty. We we took a week off. Uh, It's true. Uh, Last week was quite traumatizing for me. Uh, I had my power outage incident, which I am sort of milking for all that it's worth. It's some great Twitter content that came out of that power (laughs) outage. Thank you. Uh, It's been a week since that harrowing uh, 36-hour period, but it did feel like I aged several years during that, so (laughs) I feel justified in continuing to bring it up. Uh, But Griffin... Much more importantly than anything going on in my world, there is a, a, it's like in risk is how I see it. It's like we're, we started in Irkutsk, the best place to start, of course, you have easy access to Alaska. And since then, we have expanded our empire into yet another region, Griffin. That indeed we have, Chris, you know, we love our uh stats on this podcast our listener stats and i think that's because we love our listeners Mm -hmm. i think that's where that comes from we love hearing from you guys we love knowing who you are and more importantly where you are so that we can find you in the case of an emergency what you are too 60 percent male in terms of spotify at least that's what they are uh and why you are that's what i was gonna say yeah please continue they they don't have a stat for that our our listeners raison d'etre I feel like if you're listening to a podcast, it kind of says a lot already about why you are the way that you are. Perhaps not a positive reflection, but anyways, Griffin. Very true, Chris. But uh, first off, we're still going strong with our German listener, except a little bit of diversity in our German portfolio. Now only 97% of our German listeners are located in the Hess region because three percent of our german listeners are located in the saxony region of germany so uh we're we're growing in germany four percent of our overall listeners are now german uh, which is crazy crazy. to me so that must mean we have what 33 german listeners at least and one of them is uh in saxony did you say 
Yes, the Saxony region. Um, I mean, I'm not sure about 33 German listeners. I'm not sure if those numbers quite add up, if they can be extrapolated over our total listenership without giving too much away, Chris. But the real exciting thing, speaking of Germany and uh, Axis powers, we have an Italian listener, Chris. <laughs> Welcome aboard. Uh, this listener comes from the Lombardy region of Italy, something that I thought would end in an I for sure, Lombardy, but it ends in yeah. a Y according to our podcast mm. hosting service, wow. which doesn't seem very Italian to me. Um, my sister is the... traveling through Europe right now, so it might mm. just be her, but I also don't think she listens to the podcast. So. I would suppose and hope not. Um, Griffin, do you think that they stumbled across this podcast because we sometimes talk about the NFL, which of course awards the Lombardi Trophy, mm. and so they were just trying to figure out more about the region that they come from, and then they, <laughs> through I assume, uh, I assume they went to like page 8,950 <laughs> and stumbled the, across us. Yes. The Lombardi Trophy was indirectly mentioned by proxy of the NFL once on the High Floor Losing <laughs> podcast. They're like, I gotta check that out. Oh, I mean, it's a great name at the very yeah. least. But Griffin, we are continuing to do it to them. We are continuing to roll along just as the NBA and NHL playoffs are. Uh, we took a bit of a break last week, partly because the all the series were sort of in, in the middle and we didn't want to rehash ourselves too much but we now have almost all of our matchups set for the next round of the playoffs which will be the last you know the last round in which we have NBA and NHL running at the same time we have Hurricanes and Rangers game seven happening tonight as of uh, Monday when we're recording this but other than that we have our matchups for the finals and conference finals in the two leagues but an exciting time quite uh, frankly it really is honestly i feel like the nhl playoffs have really brought this year what the nba playoffs have not chris like the nba playoffs the, the celtics heat was a good series and celtics bucks as well but everything in the western conference aside from like Mavs suns has sort of been a dud yeah, I was talking about this with some people recently. I think overall, when you actually look at the games themselves, like there have been some interesting storylines. Obviously, the Mavs bouncing the Suns in Game 7, that was crazy. But when you actually look at the games themselves and think about like, if, if you wanted to go back and watch a game from this playoffs, like there aren't a lot of great options. Uh, you know, like even things like, the Celtics and the Bucks, like there were a lot of blowouts in those games. The Mavericks and the Suns, there were a lot of blowouts. Like it hasn't been the most exciting playoffs, but if you want exciting, you could look no further than Game Seven between the uh, the Celtics and the Heat. And Griffin, your Celtics takes <laughs> have just been decimated and dismantled. Quite frankly, I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. Well, Chris. Just to jog our listeners' memories, here's an example, just a couple examples of the things you and I have had to say about the Boston Celtics this year. And my sort of take on the Celtics at the start of the season was, you have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, and that alone should be enough to get you to 50 wins. And again, we're obviously saying, like, nothing is impossible at this point. We're still very early in the season, but they're a bottom 10 defense. They're nearly a bottom 10, or sorry, a bottom 10 offense, nearly a bottom 10 defense. Um, but I think the biggest problem for them is their bench. Like, they, you look at their roster and they just do not have the guys. The Celtics are interesting. Like, they, if you look at the box score, it seems like they should be doing better than they are. But yeah, like you said, the problem is on defense. They have not looked good there. You'd think a team with Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and Robert Williams and Al Horford would be solid enough to do well on defense so it's been surprising I think the Celtics are still going to be fine they're not I don't think they'll have home court in the first round but I do think that they'll be a playoff team just very quickly are you worried at all for the Boston Celtics playing the Brooklyn Nets I'm in massively, the matchup? massively wow. worried massively for the Boston worried. Celtics I'm worried for the Celtics to the point where like I'm not even worried for them because I just expect them to lose <laughs> Wow. 
Well, Griffin, I believe the, <laughs> the record speaks for itself there. Um, and I, I don't think that I was, you know, I don't think anyone really at the time that you were talking, uh, that we were talking about the Celtics, uh, sort of mid-season or early season in the first third or so of the year, not a lot of people, I think, had much faith in the Celtics. And I was sort of going through the same thing again of why is this team not good? And you couldn't really point to a reason why. And I think that the answer is probably just they were good, but they just weren't playing well, which is not that common in the NBA, I feel like, but does happen sometimes. Yeah, it, it is definitely rare in the NBA for a team to just sort of click halfway through like we saw the Celtics do this year with the new coach and stuff like that. So I guess that's part of it. But Chris, I appreciate you trying to defend me, but there was also a quote in there from before the first round of the playoffs when the Celtics were a two seed, and I said that they had no chance against Brooklyn. So I've been consistently bad in my evaluate. The Celtics are a blind spot for me. I cannot evaluate the Boston Celtics well. Uh, and if you want to do NBA Finals picks now, I'm going to blow your mind. You're going to blow my mind by picking the Celtics or by continuing your trend? Absolutely. Of- Chris, I, there's no way the Warriors lose this series to the Boston Celtics. I mean, that's exaggerating for the sake of comedy. I hope you all laughed out there. If you <laughs> didn't, please now. laugh now. Um, but no, I'm definitely picking the Warriors to win the finals. I Wait, wait, wait. Do we Are we doing this out of order? I, I might have jumped the gun on the finals picks because we want to talk yeah. about Celtics heat don't we'll, we? we'll get to that we'll get to that i think you know the most important thing is that the we're you know we're about to enjoy some nba finals action uh coming up on thursday and i think i think that maybe the nature of the playoffs and like of the way the series have gone have maybe skewed people's perceptions of like the relative strength of these two teams do you think that i'm on something because but then again, you know, I'm sort of ambivalent about it because the Heat were banged up. The Celtics were banged up as well. Neither team, I, I think, was playing at, you know, 110% of their abilities. And I think that that, you know, if you want to talk about some some X factors going to the finals, I think that the health of the Celtics is going to be a big one. But, you know, the Celtic, I think it has to be said, the Celtics faced the Bucks and the Heat and the Warriors faced the Grizzlies and the Mavericks. And in my opinion, at least, that is a different level of competition. Yeah, I mean, the Celtics, like you said, had to go through the best player in the NBA in the second round when they took down Giannis and the Bucks. And, uh, I mean, the Warriors got sort of a tired Luka Doncic. But I definitely think that the Celtics have had a much harder road, and they've played much longer series, tougher series, so it'll be interesting to see if the Warriors, especially in that first couple games, can just sort of run all over them if the Celtics come out a little exhausted after playing back-to-back seven-game series. Yeah, the Celtics, I would definitely agree with you, have had a much tougher road to the final. So it's the old, tell us all this time, do you want to be battle-tested and tired or coming in? I feel like the Warriors are such a front-running team, though, like mm-hmm. like in their own minds. Like once they get hot, they stay hot. And so like this ramp-up against maybe a little less competition will serve them well. I don't think they'll be like shocked by a, a tougher standard in the finals. Like mm-hmm. this team's been there before quite a few that's, times. They know what to true. expect. Yeah, and the other thing, sort of to your point, you called them frontrunners. I know you're, you're more talking about like in a in a series or things like that, but I also think that they're a team that is not afraid of making a comeback, which is something that the Celtics have shown a propensity of doing. I mean, you look at Game Seven against the Heat; they were had a pretty commanding lead, uh, and you know, pretty easily could have carried that through, but ended up blowing the lead. They ended up putting themselves in uh, in a situation where it could have been going to overtime, or they could have lost. Uh, you know, in the last minute of the game. And so I think that it's also fair to say that the Cel- the I think maybe what could be the, the difference maker is like the Warriors don't have any fear of the Celtics, I don't think. I don't think they have fear of really any team. Yeah, I don't think the Celtics have any fear of the Warriors either, though. Like really? the Celtics team seems sure of themselves, to put I... it that way. And haven't the, isn't there some stat about the Celtics playing like the Warriors better than anyone else over the past however many years like they have a be- they have the best record against the Warriors in the NBA I don't know about that but I believe it uh yeah I mean I know what you mean to some extent but then I think you know it's the the old Mike Tyson everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth I think that the Celtics do have a tendency to sort of like 
they change the way they play when they're behind or whether when they're in sort of in tight situations and i think that can hurt them a lot and i think that that speaks to like sort of a lack of confidence in their game plan whereas the warriors like i feel like if they're up 10 in the fourth quarter like there's virtually no way they're giving up that lead. Like, they just feel so confident in themselves to, like, close out games and things like that. Whereas I feel like the Celtics, that's somewhere they can struggle. Yeah, I mean, as much as the Celtics have improved since their struggles midseason this year, they still have that propensity for blowing leads, as you said, Chris. And uh, it's no it's no breaking news that the Warriors are pretty capable of making a comeback. You blink and they've scored nine points in 18 seconds. Like, so for those of you out there every every commercial we see now up here in ontario advertises live betting during games so if there's ever a point in this finals where the celtics are up 22 in the midway through the third maybe a money-making opportunity and you can send 50 percent of your proceeds to uh the high floor low ceiling twitter account absolutely uh and by the way shout out to al horford who has had a terrific playoffs um i think around the time that they made that trade i was sort of looking at them and saying they don't really have a path to improve as a team if you look at their roster last year but i think that that kemba walker al horford swap worked out incredibly well for them i think Derek really white did. was a great acquisition for them he's been a super valuable piece for them in the playoffs and then you know you have guys like uh like a robert williams and a grant williams who have sort of grown from within so kudos to them they definitely uh, have impressed me in the playoffs, certainly. They have gone through some really difficult series, and now we'll just have to see uh, how the final shakes out. I honestly don't feel like I have a strong handle on these finals. Um, you know, I think I would agree with you that I would favor the Warriors, but I also think that people seem to be much more presumptuous about a Warriors win than maybe like, I, th- I don't think people are giving a lot of credit to the Celtics, which I, I feel like they should. That I agree with. I, I, I do lean Warriors, but <laughs> this is going to sound dumb, Chris. I lean Warriors, but I feel like the Celtics are going to win. I know what you, you know, there, there's a vibe. Like, like gut check. Like every time I go to pick Warriors, my gut just sees the Boston Celtics winning. Yeah, there is like a certain team of destiny aura about the Celtics that has sort of pervaded, even as they have struggled at times and, you know, gone to multiple game sevens in the playoffs and things like that. But I I think it will take me until I see probably two games because I do, oh, well, you know, if we want to do predictions, I think game one, the Warriors will just blow them out. I It's how I see, like, I don't usually, I'm not a big prescriber to like rest in the playoffs. I don't think that's as big a deal as a lot of people talk about like if a team has seven days off between a series or whatever except in terms of nagging injuries like marcus smart and al or robert williams have had i think that's the difference Mm -hmm. maker but i do think you know if you're looking at game one coming off of that long series coming off of those nagging injuries and the warriors playing at home i think there's a really high chance that they just get blown out in the first game and then we'll see from there so i'll wait till game two until i feel like i have a good handle on the series yeah, well, I mean, we just saw an Eastern Conference final where the Celtics basically traded blowouts with the uh, Miami Heat. Mm-hmm. So talk about a hard series to get a read on. Speaking of which, Chris, uh, that Game 7, we're coming here 24 hours or so, maybe less, 22 hours after Game 7 wrapped up. And Boston almost blew a lead. Heat almost made a great comeback. But Jimmy Butler mm-hmm. said, I'm bored. I want to <laughs> I want to go to the offseason. I want to go home. I yeah. want to go back to my 90, 1992 pickup truck in my house with no TV. Uh, <sighs> uh, I can't talk about Jimmy Butler, <laughs> but we must talk about this shot, which I think is what you're alluding to here, Griffin. That I am. I, I'm of two minds about it. I think, I don't know, as much as I don't like Jimmy Butler, it's really hard to argue that he doesn't have a track record of success in the playoffs, that he doesn't have a track record of elevating his game in the playoffs, that he doesn't have a propensity to make shots that you would not expect him to make in the playoffs. And I don't I don't know if I fully agree with the idea, you know, like the Paul George, that's a bad shot kind of mentality. Like I, I am usually someone who's like situation 
isn't that big of a deal. You should mostly just be going for the best shot as it presents to you. And I think, you know, that play was far from, like, <laughs> from over or, like, set when he took that shot, right? Like, it's not like nothing would have changed if he had driven to the basket and maybe... Yeah. Hell, he was barely defense. set. He looked like he took the shot, like, off balance. <laughs> he jammed on the brake so hard. Yeah, and so I... And I'm kind of of two minds about it. I think that it's not unreasonable for your top player to try and take and make that shot. But at the same time, I think in that specific situation... Like, it's weird to say, but I I almost would feel better about it if it wasn't a fast break three and he wasn't so, like, unsaid about it. Because I think it's more the nature of the shot that hurt him than it was the actual, like... The, like, I don't, I don't mind someone taking a fast break three in that situation. I mind that, like, he wasn't, like, not set and took a weird, bad, bad shot in the sense of his form. No, yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I think in a vacuum, a, an average player taking that shot isn't terrible but jimmy butler shot 23 percent from three this season 23 percent from three and in See, this that's... playoffs he shot 34 percent from three so a bit better in the playoffs but it's like that with 18 seconds left that's so much time you've got al horford backpedaling i was blown away that he didn't take it to the rim and just like make a grown man move on Al Horford and try and draw contact. Like, do you remember game seven against the Raptors? Obviously you do when Jimmy was on the Sixers right before the mm -hmm. Kawhi shot, Jimmy Butler mm -hmm. tied yep. the game heading into that Kawhi shot because he, in the exact same situation, drove to the rim and got Serge Ibaka to foul him and hit two free throws. Like yeah, why wouldn't he I do that people... again? He, why would he take an, a weird rushed or just pull it out and trust in your ability to get like a, half court offense shot yeah, that i don't I like mean, as much I like wouldn't... i i get wanting to get it while transition is going on especially with boston being such a good defensive team but it, it was just a weird weird choice to me yeah i mean like the the numbers you're talking about like that i think that is like the jimmy of it for me where i don't really mind him taking that shot because i do believe that Jimmy Butler is more likely to make a pull-up three in the last 20 seconds of a game seven than he is at like any other given time. True. Like, I think he, I think he does have that like in him and just like a sense of the moment and things like that. But you know, I, it's, it's hard to disagree. It wasn't a good shot. I've seen people say like, Oh, well, you know, even if they tied it, they Boston would have had the ball with the game tied and a chance to win. And then they might've had to go to overtime and they were so tired. And it's like, that's, all not unreasonable but i don't think that that really justifies it no it's like yeah but they they aren't guaranteed to lose in overtime they they lost so i mean it's <laughs> yeah. a hindsight is 2020 but him doing what he did they lost so you can't say oh going to overtime wouldn't have been any better because right now we 100 percent know that they lost so it's yeah. not 100 I mean, like... percent that they would have lost in overtime yeah, and an individual play in an individual game, I think, is always going to have a bit of that sort of results-based bias that, that it can create in people where, you know, if he takes the shot, then, you know, it's Jimmy. Like, it's clutch Jimmy. That's what he does in the playoffs. That's what, you know, he's done. He's had so many amazing performances in this playoffs as well. And so that is what makes me think, like, there is, like I said, I don't hate him taking that shot in that moment. I may be don't like that specific shot yeah but the dumbest thing to me i see is like people saying that oh if he had made that shot you guys would be celebrating him right now it's like well yeah but that doesn't like he didn't get unlucky he took a bad shot and missed <laughs> like you can say that and yeah people would be celebrating him but that's still in the vacuum of probability would not make it the smartest decision so just saying if it had gone in, it would have been a good shot. That's not That's not true. Yeah, well, that's the Paul George thing, right? That's the that's a bad shot thing, and everyone made fun of him for that, but I do kind of agree. Like, at a certain point, there are just certain players, like, I think Damian Lillard is obviously one, and, you know, Jimmy Butler is one as well, where it's like, they are better at taking and making shots in high-leverage situations than the average player and i think you have to even if the numbers don't necessarily support it you just have to put some level of respect on that 
Um, but we have <laughs> already spent far more time than I expected talking about this series. There's a lot to talk about. Um, I'm quite excited for the finals to start. I hope it's a good series. I would be quite sad just in general if, like, I, it seems very unlikely that the Celtics will, you know, win in four or five games. Uh if it is a short series, I think it's much more likely the Warriors win. But either way, I'm hoping for a long series, hopefully some closer games, because, you know, that game seven was a really strong game, even though it had some times when it was borderline unwatchable. Uh, it, it still was an enjoyable game to watch. Yeah, Chris, I'm looking forward to the finals, too. I think it's going to be a great series. But just before we move ourselves over to the uh, other playing surface, um <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to get your pick on a couple different uh, finals MVP odds here, Chris. I've got the odds mm. for six players to win finals MVP. This is for the NBA. Um, and so I want to get your take on the smartest money that you think that our listeners can lay down The Marcus here. Smartest. Marcus Smartest. Did you see my funny tweet last night about Marcus Dumb? <laughs> oh, that's interesting because, you know, his name would suggest... Yeah, I said that the uh, the Celtics shot selection at the end of the game was pretty Marcus dumb because he had taken and missed like three consecutive mm-hmm. wide yeah. open threes. That's true. Uh, anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, Chris, the odds on favorite for Finals MVP this might not surprise you too much is Stephen Curry mm-hmm. at a one point nine to one. You can bet ten dollars and win nineteen dollars. Uh, what do you think of that? It's the yeah, safest just... bet for sure. I would say so, yes. I think, you know, looking at the odds, you know, I think Jason Tatum's the other person who is sort of in the realm of, you know, close money. And then, you know, you have some more outliers. It goes Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins. I would be really angry and shocked if Marcus Smart won Finals MVP. Um, I would be really annoyed if it sort of was the Andre Iguodala thing where, he defends Steph Curry well, and they win, and Jason Tatum scores like 27 points a game, but it doesn't matter because Marcus Smart defended Steph Curry, and Steph Curry is like the main character of this finals in the same way that <laughs> LeBron was the main character of the 2015 finals. Uh, but to that point, I think that people are really anxious to give a finals MVP to Steph Curry. <laughs> and That's true. He really, still doesn't have one. He doesn't have one. He definitely should have won it in 2015. I think people... A, people are silly to say he shouldn't have won in 2015, and B, people are w- even sillier to say he should have won in 2017 or 2018 because <laughs> Kevin Durant was ridiculously, unbelievably good in both of those series. Um, but yeah, I think that that's going to come up a lot, especially if the Warriors are winning. People are going to start talking about Steph Curry and how he doesn't have a Finals MVP and how he's one of the greatest players of all time, and how we need to recognize him more and appreciate him more. And I think that's all true. And I think that, you know, 99, maybe not 99, but I'd say 90% chance if they win the finals, he will be the number one reason why. I guess, like, you could say maybe Draymond Green has, like, an amazing series and contributes, like, so much on defense that he's the guy. But, you know, on offense... Even, you know, so much has been said about what Steph Curry does for an offense without his scoring, without his playmaking, just by being on the floor. And so I think it's really hard to argue if you're talking about, you know, most valuable player, (laughs) that he gives you the most plus value when he's on the court. And so I think the combination of the strong narrative factor and 90% chance he is genuinely the best player in the series if the Warriors do win then that makes him like the far and away the best bet for me. Yeah, I think if the Warriors win, he's probably going to be the choice. But I do think it is worth saying that Steph, like he's been pretty good this playoffs. But in the against Dallas, he averaged twenty four points a game. Against Memphis, he averaged twenty six points a game. Against Denver in the first round, he averaged twenty eight points a game. So he's going down by two points per game per <laughs> round. I think that he is going to see a lot of Marcus Smart, which. Uh, whether or not you think he's the defensive player of the year, I do think that's going to make his life hard. Sure. Um, so I can see a universe in which Steph sort of stumbles in this finals. And because I, I still think he is like a big sort of feast or famine type player. Uh, so I, yeah, Chris, I've got a couple other names here for you that I 
these are not all of the odds on finals MVP, mm-hmm. obviously, but I can see a world in which Marcus Smart at 23 to one is not a terrible bet. If he really shuts down Curry and Curry has like a bad series and only averages like 14 points per game. And then Marcus Smart also scores like 12 points per game and Tatum and Brown sort of like equal each other. Like those are all things that I could see happening. Yeah, I mean, the the Iguodala. I mean, it. I, I think that yeah, would it's, be a, more it's an Iguodala Finals MVP. Yeah, and I I hate that that is like a piece of uh, precedent that can be like harkened back to now because it does really annoy me when it's like you play defense really well and you scored like ten points per game and that's awesome. It's like sure, that's awesome, but like you weren't like objectively. I think it's like. If you want to talk about Curry 90% being the best player, I think it's probably like 96% that Marcus Smart will not actually be the player who provides the most value to his team in the NBA Finals. And like for that reason, even though I think that it's possible that, you know, if if like you said, if everything breaks the right way, he could definitely be someone who wins it for that reason. You know, if Steph Curry ends up averaging like 12 points a game or something really, really low like that, but it would... I would not be pleased. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah, and I mean, another interesting one is Andrew Wiggins at 34 to 1, but I think it's a case yeah. he's been so important to the Warriors this year, but I think his value does not show up in the type of things that are measured in like people who vote for most valuable players. So, uh 34 to 1 is interesting, but I don't think he just like puts up enough raw points per game. The one that I'm circling is my best bet, Chris is uh Jalen Brown 11 to mm-hmm. 1. I think that yeah. him at he's got like more than 3 times better a chance than Jason Tatum. And I could definitely see Jalen Brown like if we think that Draymond sort of ends up switching on to Tatum a lot like Jalen Brown maybe against Clay or, or I guess Wiggins, but I I think Jalen Brown could have a big series here. Yeah, I think that um you know both the Warriors and the Celtics are teams that aren't really like beholden to one player in the way that say the heat were with with jimmy right like where you pretty much know well i guess jimmy did have like eight points and six points in that series but they're less beholden to one player for the bulk of their scoring i think that you know you can have over a five game stretch a period where jalen brown does outscore jason tatum and like you said a lot of the defensive attention is going to be on tatum and so I think that's definitely a possibility. The way that the Miami Heat defended Jalen Brown uh, in that series and forced him to put the ball on the floor a lot, I think they turned him over like five times in one of the games in the series. I, that does give me a little bit of pause just because like, even if Jason Tatum is having the ball taken out of his hands, I don't trust Jalen Brown that heavily as a primary ball handler and a shot creator and things like that. But I do definitely see where you're coming from. You know, if you want to talk about it from like a poker perspective, I think the value for the money, if you're getting like saying Jalen Brown is three times less likely to get the finals MVP than Jason Tatum, then I, I do like those odds. Um, and also just quickly to your Wiggins point, I think the thing that would dissuade me from Wiggins and more towards like a Jordan Poole type of player is that he's pretty consistent (laughs) he is usually like i think the vast majority of his games he's been in like the 12 to 19 point range uh in the playoffs and i think that that is like you know you're not going to be like oh there was just four games where andrew wiggins had like 35 points it's just going to be like he's going to consistently give you what he gives you and it's not really too likely that he's going to give you more than that yeah but he has i'm glad that uh Zach Lowe is sort of leading this charge to get him recognition for what he's done for the Warriors this year because he has been so good for them, both especially on defense, but on both ends. He has been uh, exactly what they needed. And just a good old Canadian boy, I think we're both glad to see him finally. He's been through sort of a rocky first couple mm-hmm. of... Well, I guess he's been in the NBA for a while now. But, yeah, uh, like I think eight years now. But geez. yeah. I, I even going Happy back to him, last though. year, I think that this is a much better situation for him. I think that taking the ball out of his hands, asking him to do less and just be great at the things that he does do is, is exactly what he needed. And, you know, not asking him to be the number one or even the number two scoring option, I think is perfect for him. And he is, like you said, he is a big reason why 
they're in the finals and he should be recognized. Griffin, we took far longer on that little finals preview. I'm not upset uh, that we did, but we took far longer than we expected to. So why don't we take a quick break and then we will come back and talk about the conference finals in the NHL when we return on Hefloor. Low ceiling. And welcome back to High Floor, Low Ceiling. We are having so much fun that we couldn't help ourselves and dive deep on that exciting Game 7 and this exciting Finals. Like I said, I'm very excited for that to happen. But I'm equally excited, maybe more on one side of the bracket than the other, and we can get to that. Uh, But the Conference Finals are almost set here, Griffin. The Hurricanes and the Rangers will play tonight, and then that team will go on to face the Tampa Bay Lightning in the Eastern Conference Finals. In the Western Conference Finals, I believe the first game is tomorrow between the Oilers and the Avalanche. Uh, I won't tip my hand as to which series I'm more excited for yet, but why don't we start with the, uh, the Hurricanes and the Rangers, Griffins, two teams that have traded i don't want to say blows because they have both not been that amazing i will say um the the sort of plot line of this one i guess is that the hurricanes have not won on the road yet in the playoffs and have not lost at home yet in the playoffs which is insane um but you know let's let's make ourselves look foolish by the time this episode comes out game seven will have been played so who do you have in this uh pivotal game seven which uh carolina will be at home for for whatever that's worth yeah well chris you know what they say the uh, a series doesn't start until a team loses at home so uh, i hope that the carolina hurricanes can start the playoffs sometime soon because the rest of the league is waiting no i am picking the hurricanes chris partially because they are at home and at this point it would be ridiculous if they lost now at home but also I think they're they're just the better team however the Rangers do have the better goalie so that is always in your one game scenario the big Mm -hmm. x factor but I think that the Hurricanes when at home have looked like much the better team over the Rangers and then like in New York it's looked more even and the Rangers have come away with it but I think that the difference in Carolina has been substantial for whatever reason don't get like a sports psychologist down there or something to figure out what the heck's going on with the Carolina Hurricanes. But I am going to be picking the Carolina Hurricanes to win this game seven. That starts in like, has it started? It might have started. Oh yeah, we should check that information. No, I think it starts at, uh, in, in 15 minutes uh, from the time that we're recording this on Monday evening. Um, You're just going to have to take our word for it. <laughs> you certainly will. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great home crowd, I will say, uh, of the Hurricanes games I've watched. They do have a really strong home crowd. I don't think that that is the, the, the only or even the primary reason that they have found so much success at home, but it is what it is. And to your point, Griffin, you know, I said this in the first round. I said that in, after that series against Boston, I was like, Carolina always felt like the better team throughout that series, so it makes sense that they won. And then for the Rangers, I said that Pittsburgh always felt like the better team throughout that series, so I was surprised that the Rangers won. So I'm in the exact same place I was. Uh, it, you know, I'm batting 50-50 at this point, so we'll have to see. But I agree with you. The Hurricanes feel like the more complete roster. I really like their depth. Like I think that they're still the most underrated team. Well, maybe the Rangers are equally underrated, perhaps, but only because... <laughs> Nobody's watching this series. Um, <laughs> I I think that the Hurricanes are just a really stout team from top to bottom, and I favor that kind of like consistency in a game seven. But then you flip to the other side, and you're like, well, it's one game, so you know anything could happen. The Rangers have Igor Shesterkin, who has been consistently better over the course of this series, and then they have like a Panarin who has a propensity for big goals, and so maybe that's the edge there, but. I'm not going to pick against the, the team I think is better in a game seven. I think I have to go with the Hurricanes as well, but I think this will, I would be quite surprised if this was a blowout to say the least. Yeah, the better team at home. It's a safe pick, but it's uh, one that we are going to make, Chris. But yeah. something that had literally zero safe picks in the entire series was the Battle of Alberta, Chris. Seriously. Uh, 
I'm like I just you bringing it up like made me feel exhausted <laughs> over both the, how late those games were and how good and like offenseful. I think I said on this podcast that like that was going to be a very high offense game and or high offense series, and I was absolutely right. That you were, Chris. It was like it was a good series, but. Like is it is it like one of those series where like both teams were amazing or both teams were just sort of equally or like oppositely good and bad? It is sort of weird that the Oilers only won in five. Like the vibe of that series is not a five game series. Yeah, I was definitely going to say the exact same thing. I think that those were two very evenly matched teams and you know, in in, in most of the games uh, in, in the later half of the series, Edmonton was playing with the lead a lot. Calgary was trying to come back a lot, and they did come back or at least you know, put themselves in range to maybe make a comeback in most of those games, except for Game 3. Um, and so, like you said, it doesn't feel like a five-game series. They did feel evenly matched, even though <laughs> the scores were sometimes very inflated. Um, but then I feel like... You know, it's we talk a lot about how the NBA one player can impact the game a lot more than in other sports, but I feel like Connor McDavid is kind of testing that hypothesis because I don't think the Oilers are a bad team. Like, it's not a weak supporting cast, but it's a pretty average supporting cast by and large. Yeah, well, you've got Leon Dreisaitl, obviously, who is doing miraculous things considering that he can barely skate. He's injured so badly and still is like breaking records in terms of consecutive multi-point games and things like that. But aside from that, the Oilers are certainly a iffy team, which brings us, Chris, to what I think is going to be a really great Western Conference final because the Blues and Avalanche played a great series as well. A big mm-hmm. shout-out to Nazem Kadri. Oh, I saw you make a face when I tried to move on without bringing up something that was in our doc. Uh, just a few weeks ago, Chris, on this very podcast, oh, speaking of old takes... Mm-hmm. I I did a rant about how Austin Matthews was a better player than <laughs> Connor McDavid, and I mean I, I think I think I just got to take this one. There's no talking my way out of this one. There, there isn't. I mean, you know, you can you can of course argue like he's the better defensively. <laughs> yes, you did say that. The Hart Trophy, you know, it is a regular season award. We're not giving... Connor oh, that McDavid I think any... still goes to Matthews, but the title yeah. of best player in the world. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I, I feel like <laughs> I have watched a lot more hockey since the time that we had that conversation. You know, this playoffs, I've really, really enjoyed watching this NHL playoffs. I've watched way more games than I usually would because... Uh, you know, I'm working these games. I'm watching them for for work a lot of the time, and I have not been angry about that at all because I think it has been really exciting. I I hate to say it, but those annoying people, NHL fans who talk about how like the NHL is so amazing and the NBA sucks, like I kind of I don't think the NBA sucks, but I see how they came to that conclusion. One because. The NHL playoffs are so exciting. There's so much variance. Like anything, it does feel like anything can happen and things can just swing in a moment. And there's so much like atmosphere around that. And I just think that if you watch a lot of hockey and then you watch a basketball game, you feel like everyone's moving in slow motion for a little bit. It's true. And I was like, I was going to say it's funny because in the, in the NHL playoffs, things like tighten up a lot more. And I feel like in hockey, when both teams tighten up, it levels the playing field a much more. So you have mm-hmm. like lots more overtimes and stuff like that. Whereas in basketball, I think both teams tighten up in the playoffs as well, but even tightened up like over the course of a basketball game, especially with like three pointers nowadays, good teams just are so much more consistently better than bad teams. Whereas in hockey, mm-hmm. the good teams are not as consistently better than the bad teams, which I think is what contributes to the fact that every year the NHL playoffs are amazing. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about the the Avalanche and the Blues in a moment, which I think is a great example of that. But to return to the Matthews-McDavid thing, like, having watched more hockey now, and maybe this is just, like, a, a, a stylistic thing between the two players, but I feel like if you ask someone to watch a hockey game and then, like, tell you who the best player was, like, it would be so easy 
for someone to see that Connor McDavid was the best player in a hockey game, it might be a little harder for someone to see what makes Austin Matthews great. And he doesn't feel like as much of like a cheat code or a game breaker, like a video game character in the way that McDavid does. And I feel like that probably does contribute to like people's opinions, but I think it also contributes to what makes him so good in the playoffs is like, he can just like, like I said, because things can swing in a moment if you have a guy that can swing a moment in such a, a a lopsided way, then he looks incredible. And McDavid has been incredible in the playoffs. Yeah, it's like he really has been, like you said, Chris, just even to the most untrained eye. Like if you brought in someone who had never played in the end, who had never watched the NHL before, and you showed them one of those Oilers Flames games, and you'd be like, all right, these are the players in the NHL. And someone would see Connor McDavid and go, oh, and, and what league is he from? Like, he, <laughs> the, he's from he the can't Champions be the same. League. Like, is there something better than the NHL? Because that's where he belongs. He's been incredible. He's been must-see TV. But this Colorado Avalanche team has a must-see TV player themselves in Nathan McKinnon. And they're very similar players, which I think is what makes them so fun. They both are blindingly fast. Uh, and I think it's going to be, I'm going to go out on a limb. I think this is going to be a really exciting series, Chris, the Oilers and the Avalanche. Yeah. I mean, like it, it is funny how much of the conversation has been about McKinnon when like, I, I saw some sort of segment on a TV show or something like that, where like some, some was like, Oh, like, well, the Oilers have one of the best players in the world and Connor McDavid. And then the Avalanche have one of the best players in the world. And like my mind filled in like Nathan McKinnon. And then he was like, the Avalanche have one of the best players in the world, Kale McCarr, <laughs> because <laughs> they do. And, like, I think most people would probably say, like, at least relative to their, to their position and things like that, like, McCarr is arguably the best defenseman in the NHL. He is arguably, like, an MVP-type contender. You know, McKinnon's always in that conversation, but he is not, you know, he's not a McDavid or even a Matthews if you're looking at the regular season. Um, and so... The thing about the Avalanche is, I maybe I said this on the podcast already, but whenever I watch the Avalanche, I can't understand how they ever lose a hockey game <laughs> because like <laughs> they it's just like even if you just look at their you know say their top two forward lines and their top two defensive pairings, like how do you beat that? <laughs> like they have like out of those you know the ten guys, like eight of them are like bona fide stars, like their entire top line uh, like if, if they're playing their five best guys that's basically an all-star team and it, then Darcy are, Kemper's there as well yeah they are incredible I think that part of the reason this series is going to be so great is that both teams have like goaltenders who can either run very hot or very cold mm-hmm. so that's going to make it a lot of fun but Chris I'll tell you one way that you could beat the Colorado Avalanche is you could have Connor McDavid on your team and it's true I I honestly I'll I'll say it I I'm picking the Oilers. I think that they're going to win the Western Conference Finals. I I under I completely understand where you're coming from. I don't think it's at all unreasonable to pick the Oilers here. And it's strange because, you know, to the point I was making about the Avalanche, like they don't always play up to what you feel like they should. Like it's weird to think that they went to six games against the St. Louis Blues. Like it took longer for them to beat the St. Louis Blues that it did for what you would say is a significantly worse team probably on paper in the Oilers to beat a significantly better team in the Flames. So like that I think is like the playoff hockey thing. And I don't know if there's more to it than that. I, maybe there's like a secret part of hockey I'm missing where, you know, like some teams that are just great on paper are not built to, you know, it's, it's a bit of the playoff hockey kind of thing <laughs> where the St. Louis Blues are a very playoff hockey team. And so maybe the uh, the Avalanche just sort of open things up against the Oilers. I think that's a very real possibility as well. But it, I think this will be a lot more like the Flames-Oilers series than it will be like the Avalanche-Blues series, it's fair to say, right? Agreed. And I definitely think that the Avalanche will still find themselves very comfortable in that kind of series. Uh, yeah. While we're just touching on the Avalanche-Blues series, a big shout-out to Nazem Kadri for mm-hmm. just doing all the things that he does and dealing with all the things that he dealt with. Uh, if, if you're not caught up, Nazem Kadri had to deal with some pretty vile 
racist stuff after an incident between him and Blues goaltender Jordan Bennington, but uh, I think everyone in Toronto is united in their love of Nazem Kadri, and everyone in hockey should be as well, because he's a great player, uh, really exciting, and someone who has had a lot of success shutting down Connor McDavid in the past. Yeah, I th- I think that, you know, uh, I, I think I am taking the avalanche here, and, you know, to speak to that point, I think one of the big reasons why I like the avalanche, uh, did we already talk about how, I think we did talk about it a few weeks ago, how the Avs are like what the Leafs wish they could be or what the Leafs are supposed to be in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, for, for it, a long time they were sort of the same because I think... The- the, the second round was to the Avalanche, yeah. but the first round was to the Leafs. Yeah, they went out in the second round three straight years before this year. Um, but but I think what's great about the Avalanche, especially this year in particular, you know, if you want to talk about what's different compared to the previous years, is, like, they can play such a diversity of styles. Like, I feel like they can play slow and sort of grimy up a game. And then if you allow them to, like, spread out and play a more free-flowing, play a more shot-heavy, offense-heavy game, then it's like, well, then they're even more unstoppable because you have, like, McKinnon and Rantanen and Makar, and it's like, how do you ever stop that? And so I think that what's crazy is, like, they're good enough to beat, uh, you know, a team that plays more of a lockdown style, but then if you put them up against an Oilers, I think they... I expect them to elevate to another level, and that's why I think that they're going to, you know, I think there's a not not tiny chance that they dominate this series. Very true. I mean, that's I think that's possible whenever you're discussing the Colorado, the Colorado Avalanche, just <laughs> as we've been saying here, based on the merit of how ridiculously talented they are from right. top to bottom. Uh, but Chris, uh, one uh, speaking of ridiculously talented from top to bottom, maybe it's just because they haven't played in a week and the Western Conference has been getting all the hype, but how about the ta- the back-to-back defending Stanley Cup champions going for a three-peat Tampa Bay Lightning? Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about a team that can play a diversity of styles. I think yeah. that, you know, I think that, you know, as much as I, well, I really would rather the Lightning come into the East than... The Hurricanes of the oh, Rangers. 110%. Seeing the Lightning against either the Avalanche or the Oilers would just be yes. a fascinating, fascinating hockey series on top of being incredibly entertaining. Yeah, exactly. I think this is like the year where for the Lightning, it's like they they aren't as good as they were, but I think just like the soup. Well, and then the, there's the Vasilevsky factor as well. But I also think that they're just so they always seem so supremely confident, I think is the huge difference maker for them. And like, I mean, that was kind of, I feel like what made the difference for them in game seven against the Leafs is like, they'd been there before they knew what they had to do. And like their top guys just have so much confidence in themselves to get the job done that like they can basically take on anyone. Even if, you know, if you stack them up head to head against the avalanche, for example, I think they're an objectively worse team but I would have trouble feeling com- definitely feeling confident. I would have trouble picking against the Lightning in a series against the Avalanche just because they seem like they could. They're more than the sum of their parts. Yeah, I do think it's worth saying that. Like, the Lightning are still a stacked, yes, stacked they're still a great team, team. But, but not the as stacked as just they were like, like on, last in another year. stratosphere. Um, yeah, and the Lightning were in that stratosphere last year and less so this year. Yeah, but, I mean, we did see, like, you talk about that Game 7 against the Leafs. It was a depth guy, Nick Paul, who scored both of their goals. That's true. I think that the Lightning are a deep team. They've got a good fourth line, a good third line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I would have to pick them, I think, uh, over Edmonton for sure. And I'd, I'd give serious, serious thought to Colorado. But, I mean, against Colorado, you just sit back with the popcorn for seven games, hopefully, and just enjoy some great hockey. But the Tampa Bay Lightning, the way they just brushed aside the Florida Panthers like it was absolutely nothing was alarming like it sort of made me go like oh geez made me feel bad for the Leafs first of all who (laughs) battled the Lightning for seven games and I mean you did you did say this Griffin about the Florida Panthers that they didn't feel like a team that were all that reliable even though they had you know won the President's Trophy that they weren't a team that you felt like you could count on in the playoffs and it wasn't that surprising that especially against the Lightning, who are, like I said, so confident that they folded it against a team like that. Yeah, I mean, it does sort of come back as much as I like to sort of roll my eyes at playoff hockey type people, as you so eloquently said earlier, Chris. There is, I think, very much something to 
you can tell which teams are set up for the playoffs in the NHL and which teams aren't. And even though, like, the Florida Panthers were a great team, you just could tell that they were not set up to win in the playoffs. And they handled it. I forget who they played in the first round. It feels like five months ago. Uh, they, of course, Washington Capitals. The Washington Capitals. <laughs> and, but they just ran into a brick wall of Tampa Bay Lightning. And Yeah, I mean, they I weren't. Mean, they weren't even that, you know, confidence instilling in that series either against the Capitals. Like, they took more to take care of business against the Capitals than you would have expected. And, you know, even though you could say the same about the Oilers against the Kings, like, I think that does often bode ill for a, for a team. Um, you know, I think it's safe to say that we are going to be picking the Lightning, both of us, against yes. either the Hurricanes or the Rangers. I think... The Hurricanes would be an interesting matchup uh, because I think the talent level and, you know, the depth versus depth conversation would be really interesting. And I think that the Hurricanes would have a, a real chance there. My question for you, Griffin, is can the Lightning win the Stanley Cup final without Braden Point? Because he, you know, he seems to be coming along. He seems like he could be back at some point. But if you're in the finals yeah. against an Edmonton, or a Colorado, do you think that they have enough firepower to do it without him? I do, Chris. I mean, I think that obviously it's a big loss and he's a great player, but I really just cannot overstate how impressed I've been by the Tampa Bay Lightning. And like you said, they have the ultimate confidence. I think I also have the ultimate confidence in the Tampa Bay Lightning. Like, they are on the verge of history here. A three-peat has not happened in the NHL since the 1980s, like coming up on 40 years. Yeah. I think they think that they can pull it off, and I, I'm i not going to bet against them. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is they feel, you know, compared to an Avalanche who always went out the second round, compared to an Oilers who feel very volatile outside of McDavid, and compared to a Hurricanes or a Rangers who just, frankly, aren't at the same talent level as those other three teams they do feel like the team that you can feel confident in and comfortable with, even though, you know, the other teams might have a little more talent, especially Colorado. Um, but I think that, quite frankly, Griffin, will do it for us today. We went more in depth on these series than I was expecting. We have, I, I, I'm speaking for myself at least, have really enjoyed this playoff season. Like, I other years it might have been more of a slog to <laughs> come in every week and just be like the nhl and the nba playoffs are still happening but like i'm happy to <laughs> come here and sit down and talk to you about all these series and all these different storylines and there's so much going on right now and it's so exciting we didn't even get the chance to talk about the blue jays we want to definitely get to some baseball in the near future once the uh, nba finals are wrapped up so look out for that in a couple of weeks but for now that will do it for us you can follow Griffin at GriffinPorter97. You can follow me at C House and Jan. You can listen to my other podcasts, Bevy of Bevies and Got the Runs. Uh, follow both of those. Griffin, anything that you want to plug for yourself? Uh, I saw uh, that you saw uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once at the cinema uh, recently and that you loved it. Uh, I did. Yes, I loved to... it, as I think just about everyone who's seen it has, Chris. Uh so that that's a plug. That's Griffin's plug of the week. Go see everything everywhere all at once because God, ah, it was so good. Made me it, at some points. I felt like I was like barely hanging on. I was like, all right, I'm pretty sure I know what's happening, but then it all, it wraps up very nicely. And the first half is like phenomenal, I think. And then it's sort of like the third quarter. I'm like, Oh, I think I'm still with it. And then the fourth quarter, I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. It's almost you know, it, it is, it's a multiverse movie. I think most people know by this point. Um, and I feel like it is almost like Marvel movie-esque and, you know, produced by the Russos and things like that. But in the way that all of the little things that, you know, you like about it, but aren't necessarily like blown away by in the first half, those all sort of coalesce and come together. And then they're they, they come back, but in different context, and they're elevated, and the whole emotional package, I think, is very potent. It's one of my favorites of the year as well. Uh, while we're talking movies, I would urge everyone to go see Top Gun Maverick in the cinema. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, it's a funny it's, sentence to hear. It's a fantastic movie. What can I say? Uh, go see it in IMAX if you have the opportunity. Uh, you know, a terrific. Did you experience. see it in 3D? Are we talking IMAX 3D or just IMAX? I don't believe it is in 3D. You can see it if you're in Toronto at the Scotiabank Theater in uh, Screen X. Do you know what this is, Griffin? Oh, is that when like the seats move? That's 4DX, which is oh, also something I would love to see uh, see this movie in. But Screen X is there are three screens, so you have a main screen oh and God. then you have two side screens. And so for select scenes, these other two screens will come on, and you're in this immersive panoramic experience. And frankly, but it's only I've never for, tried it, but it sounds crazy. It's only for certain scenes in the movie, like it turns on and off. I during the so. movie because you know because in, in imax as well like some scenes use the full imax screen true. Scene, that's and true they sh- it shrinks and stuff so you know but definitely see it in imax if you have the opportunity <laughs> at any rate that will do it for us for this week until next time please keep your floors high and your ceilings low